This is episode 28 with Dr. Daniel Four on Ancestral Health Radio. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Join me, your host, James Kevin Broderick, as we bridge the divide between modern technology and our inherent ancestral wisdom. Let's take a walk on the wild side. Is it possible to heal trauma in our personal and family lives by connecting with our well-deceased ancestors? Well, provided you possess a beginner's mindset equipped with the right animistic framework, my guest today, Dr. Daniel Four of AncestralMedicine.org, would say yes, you absolutely can. This week, Daniel and I delve into practical animism, where ritual and ceremony are used as tools for personal, family, and cultural healing. You know, a few months ago, I was surprised to receive an early copy of Daniel's magnum opus, aptly titled Ancestral Medicine Rituals for Personal and Family Healing. Since then, I've probably recommended Daniel's book to nearly all of my closest rewilding friends. Why? Partly because trauma and ways that we heal from trauma was central to many of the topics shared at this year's first annual North American Rewilding Conference. It's also worth mentioning that Daniel's work was brought up several times throughout the two and a half day experience. So without further ado, in today's episode, you'll learn how our well and unwell ancestors influence the living and non-living how directly speaking with the spirits in other than humans can break centuries of colonialism, patriarchy, and scientism, how practical animism directly enriches our day-to-day relationships, and much, much more. (laughs) Daniel Four, PhD, is a licensed therapist and a doctor of psychology. Daniel has led ancestral healing intensives throughout the United States since 2005 and is an initiate in the Ifa Orisha tradition of Yoruba-speaking West Africa. He is trained with teachers of Mahayana Buddhism, Islamic Sufism, and diverse indigenous paths, including the ways of his English, Irish, and German ancestors. Daniel's approach to ancestor reverence and earth-honoring spirituality is heart-centered, non-dogmatic, in honoring of soul-level difference. Daniel views ancestral and family healing as only one part of a larger movement for social and earth justice. Both Daniel and his wife Sarah live in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Western North Carolina. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Ancestral Health Radio. Great to be here. Well, I'm really excited because I believe your work is extremely relevant to the audience here, and I think you have a lot to say. And This book that just came out, I would like everybody to be very aware of this. It's called Ancestral Medicine Rituals for Personal and Family Healing. Definitely deserves to be in your library, on your bookshelf. I'm just telling you that beforehand, guys, because um, this is a very special book to me because it relates directly to how we can speak to our ancestors in a practical, animistic way. So, Daniel... I'm really excited to have you on today. Let's begin with your story. Sure. Yeah, I was uh, born and raised in Northeast Ohio. I'm of German, English, Irish, early colonizer, settler ancestry to the United States. And so I wasn't raised with any kind of framework for relating with the spirits or the other than human people. But I had some experiences as a teenager that cracked me open a bit and caused me to seek a framework for understanding what was happening. So I started reading about shamanism and religion a bit and had a good fortune by age 17 to connect with living teachers and so began to acquire a framework for relating with animal spirits, plant spirits, ancestors, things like that. And that served me really well. And so over the last 20 plus years, I've trained a lot with different teachers, some rooted in indigenous systems, some earth-honoring traditions that are not indigenous, like those of my own European ancestors, and a bit with Islam and Buddhism and some other, I guess you'd say, more mainstream traditions. And throughout that, I acquired a uh, degree in religious studies and trained as a licensed marriage and family therapist. I have a PhD in psychology, so that's my professional training is in mental health. Yeah. And I've been leading for the last decade plus public 
facing ritual and different kinds of animistic or earth honoring traditions. So working with the land, spirits of place, uh, and work with the ancestors, with especially ancestors of blood. So that's become a specialization and, and now the focus of the book. Oh, that's so exciting because that's perfect. I mean, the tagline of the show is how do we bridge the divide between our inherent ancestral, basically modern technology and our inherent ancestral wisdom. So it sounds like you had the traditional Western background as far as education and then decided to take that further by learning other cultures, religions, spiritualities, practices, and ways to bring that together. And I mean, that's perfect. That's exactly what we're looking for on this show. And I'm just so excited to learn more about it and ancestor reverence and how we can really bring that practical animism to the table for people listening right now. So in your book, you you had a story about one of your first experiences when you were young and your grandmother. Would you mind sharing that for the audience? Yeah, the the story about my, I think my grandfather, my dad's dad, uh, he he took his own life when I was maybe seven, and I hadn't thought about him so much since. But my first teachers, Becky and Crow, and shamanic pagan practice uh, introduced me to the possibility of relating with blood ancestors and having connected earlier in the day with an older ancestral guide on my father's father's lineage, one who lived uh, pre Christian quite a long time ago. Um, that relationship played out to a point where. I could ask him, could you intervene to assist my grandfather, who was not yet at peace in spirit? And it, it worked. I mean, we connected with him. There was a healing that happened for him in spirit. And he finally transitioned in a more settled way to join the ancestors. And it, the implications of it really uh, reverberated in a strong way. And it set me on a course of researching my own family history, which I had not valued up to that point. And once I trained as a therapist, I'm like, oh, wow, a lot of what we're suffering from culturally and a family level, individual levels, unmetabolized ancestral trauma and disconnection and uh, from a ritual side of ghosts, people who have died and haven't yet transitioned. And so I, I just ran with the implications of that. But it was it was a pivotal day of ritual for me. You know, having shared this experience with your grandmother having done the ritual and ceremony, how did she feel about that? Well, the way I shared with her was just as if it was a dream. Like I, I had a dream about grandpa and he said that he's well now and that he's sorry. And so sometimes if there's an important message to be conveyed and the culturally the living people are not so receptive, you can give them the choice. I had a, a dream, let's say. It's not totally a lie. It's a little bit of a bend of the truth uh, and I give them the choice whether or not they want to hear it mm. and most of the time living people will recognize that we can have dreams and so that's one way to convey a message and that worked for her she was receptive I think mm -hmm. yeah oh. yeah and yeah it was good it's it's been really meaningful in the last well decade plus to be guiding this work to see how ritual repair and healing that individuals do with their family ancestors can lead to positive shifts and openings and breakthroughs with living family. I'm really excited to delve into this because I have a lot of questions too. And you know, one of them, um, after going through your book was, uh, you have a really nice distinction between ancestors, the dead and how you kind of break that apart for people because it's, you know, there's a distinction there, right? Sure. Well, pe people use the word ancestors in many different ways. Uh, and so it's important to know who we're talking about. One, most broadly, the ancestors also include the other than humans. And you'll hear, for example, some Native North American people speak about their ancestors as including uh, the bear, the wind, the trees. And they may in any given moment mean that their human ancestors speak through those forms. Or they may also mean that bear and pine tree and wind are among their ancestors in a more magical and beautiful way. And for me personally, I, I use the word ancestor more narrowly to refer to the human dead, those who are previously incarnate in human form and who are now dwelling in the present, because that's how we experience the ancestors. And more narrowly than that, the ancestors can refer to those among the dead who are well in spirit who are actually seated as ancestors rather than all of the ones who have died 
And so that the others would include the ghosts, the troubled dead, the not yet ancestors, the ones who have died but have not yet transitioned to join the uh, the well ones. And so that that's a very important distinction. Not all the dead are equally well in spirit, just like not all the living are equally well. And so it's important for folks who are excited about this to not just invoke all of their ancestors by name, because they might respond. And if they respond, then you might get a mixed spectrum of energies, some of whom are deeply at peace and others who are not yet at peace. Because right. consciousness doesn't doesn't end with death and our and by extension our moral or ethical responsibility to family and to loved ones doesn't end with the death of the body. Mm. So we have a role to play in helping the dead to become ancestors, to become well seated. Uh, everybody knows that you know, on listening that I love Japanese culture and the Japanese have a very strong reverence for the dead and for their ancestors. And so when I watch some television and it's Japanese, they have <laughs> You know, they just speak about the dead in such a different way than Western culture. You know, like they're there, they're visiting, they're with him at all times. And I didn't grow up with that sense of feeling. And just like you said, there are some good, some bad, and some in between. But how exactly do our ancestors influence the living and vice versa? So many ways. It's kind of, it's a question that's so broad as to be similar to how, how do living people influence other living people? <laughs> and so many ways. Uh, the dead who are well can increase our level of protection, help us to be guided on our path of destiny, help us to be um, have good fortune and success, fertility if we want that, and um, just help our lives to be more relationally nourished and rich and uh, connective. And those who are not at peace can be a source of heaviness, interference, illness, mm -hmm. um, premature death, accidents, difficult and fortune. And the, the troubled dead, and especially the ones among them who are quite troubled, can really be a drag on the living. Mm -hmm. Because even as a privileged, Western-educated American white guy, <laughs> As a doctor of psychology and a therapist, I, I really have the, the view, and uh, it's not dramatic, it just is, that it probably at least two-thirds of what folks work with in therapy, and I'm a fan of the therapy, is intergenerational. It's usefully framed as ancestral, un unmetabolized ancestral pain and trauma and heaviness, and sometimes it's direct ghosty interference. And so people, if you ask them, will have the feeling, yes, my deceased mother or father or grandfather still sort of haunt me. And the traditionalist view would be like, yeah, it's that literal. Why don't you handle that? <sighs> and so part of what I'm seeking with the book is to introduce, uh, reintroduce or uh, re-enliven. I'm not the only one doing this work, a, um, a practical accessible framework for handling that stuff, for cleaning up family uh, troubles and, bringing forward the blessings and goodness of our diverse lineages because no matter if your family was terribly abusive if you go farther back along that bloodline their ancestors are deeply well and at peace and can bring intervention and healing to that oh yeah and you know that speaks true to me because again um pre-interview chat i had shared that you know i grew up in somewhat of a dysfunctional family and uh, you know mm -hmm. four out of six of my aunts and uncles on my mother's side had passed away from health and drug related illness. And I'm, I, I mean, just, just that right there, um, there is some unfinished business I can guarantee, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I just felt like that is carried over. And one of the biggest draws for me personally, uh, for even doing this podcast and sharing this amazing information with people, the motivation that carries me forward is that exactly that I do not want to repeat the cycle of suffering, you know, and trauma that, is caused from my family. And I want to be the person who stewards them into ancestorhood. There, there are so many really courageous, big hearted clients in therapy who have that same spirit of, I don't want to continue these troubles mm -hmm. and it's great. And the way I see it is that's a personal level courage that is trying to address a collective or systemic level problem. It's not just personal and it's not just family level troubles, it's also cultural troubles from the history of Man. genocide and sexism and colonialism here in this, you know, in the West. Mm -hmm. And, and so 
as a, as a therapist or as a healer person, if you encourage someone to address collective level troubles with personal level tools, it's possible that it's quite overwhelming to them. And so one of the ways to get stronger results is to call in collective level medicine or help or blessing. And so I'm a big fan of working with the older, well, pre-colonialism ancestors in order to metabolize a lot of the family level trouble. So there's a need to heal up the system we're embedded in ancestrally in order to be as healthy as we can be. Otherwise, it's where it's like we're just uh, sort of mowing the grass of dysfunction. It's going to grow back. So, Right. It's like an invasive species. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> so we need to learn how to tend it, right? Well, when the work is done for the dead in our lineages who are not yet at peace, mm -hmm. it's better than being managed. It's, they actually become a source of support and blessing and guidance. And so with the cultural troubles that are more systemic or bigger than us, there is a sense at times of bailing water or needing to also like, and just accept that the system's not going to change overnight. But with respect to our own bloodlines, it's possible to have lasting change that goes beyond just maintaining equilibrium. Right. And is the, the dead can change if we recognize that there's a, a relational kind of reality or beingness to the ancestors and that they dwell in the present by extension, they can change just like us. And so when we don't recognize that we tend to freeze people in the condition they were in during life and don't allow for ongoing growth after death, but the dead continue to change. So people who are mastering life can actually become allies in spirit after their death. Oh, wow. I'm sure that took a lot of weight off of people's shoulders listening to that right now. <laughs> Um, yeah. myself included. And you know, it's got me thinking now, Daniel, how exactly do we make contact? I mean, is it simple? Is it hard? Do we need tools? Or is it as simple as just speaking aloud? Oh, I'd say it's relatively simple. And it's something that everyone who, who wishes to can do. And sometimes even people who don't wish for it, it happens for them. So the dead from their side can initiate contact through dreams, through synchronicities, waking events, or just sitting down next to you in a way that you sense them to be present. Mm. Or um, they can get our attention in lots of different ways. And they're not always dramatic, but they might be. I mean, it could be as dramatic as a near-death experience or an illness that allows them to have a one-on-one -on -one with you when you're unconscious. But hopefully, hopefully it's not that dramatic. Right. And uh, when we initiate contact, it can can be very simple. It's like being guided through the work is that's the way I work. I don't tune into other people's ancestors for them. I hold a structured and safe ritual space for them to tune into those among their dead who are well in spirit, oh. and to partner with those ones to to assist the ones who are not yet well. And so I, I've seen in my own life, stepping a few thousand people through this work in the last decade, that it's quite normal and doable. And I don't want to say easy in a cavalier way, but it's, it's, uh, they're within reach. It's not as daunting, and, right, as, as it oh, no. seems speaking with, you know, the dead. Or if, I, if I was asking someone to tune in to a different person's ancestors, then they would require a higher level of intuitive kind of accuracy with it. Mm -hmm. um, but tuning into one's own ancestors, it's, it's just like we already are part of that system. Right. And so it's, it's not that big of an ask really. Because hmm. they're already with us, right? It's kind of almost like they never leave our side. It's just that it's like the great forgetting. We just forgot how to communicate with them. Yeah, it is like that. And some are um, not actively with us, but we can call upon them. Mm. And sometimes people have the dead, the recent dead who are not yet well around them, which functions as a kind of static or interference to strong relationship with the wise and well dead. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of a mixed bag. I would I'd say on average in the United States with the people I've worked with here, maybe one of our four, I consider four primary lineages in the way I work. So your mother's mother, mother's father, father's father, father's mother, and the lineage of women before the grandmas and the lineage of men before the grandpas. Of course, we have 
other lineages as well, but I look at those four in the way that I work. And on average, I'd say for many people, there's one of those lineages that's actually pretty bright and well and healed already. <laughs> Maybe one that tends to be really a mess and two that are just okay uh, on average. Because it's been, at least for European ancestry folks, it's been um, a good thousand years since we gave any attention to this topic. And for people of, let's say, African or Native North American ancestry, it's been a tough 500 years with right. the double gen genocides right. that this nation's founded on. And so um, if folks aren't actively tending to the relationships with their family ancestors and things can be in a, a bit of a state of disrepair. So we don't need to go to Ancestry.com and get a full DNA panel, right? Yeah, it's, it's good to have knowledge of our family history. But even for adoptees who will never meet their parents or know their names, they can relate just as strongly and at depth with their ancestors of blood as someone who has a lot of genealogical information. Okay, because that's, that's good. And I, I know that's on a lot of people's minds listening right now because, you know, we're in America. We're just a melting pot of other countries and cultures. So for a lot of people here, you know, it's very difficult for them to find or feel a connection to their ancestors possibly or a certain tradition or however that may look for them because I can only speak for myself. And for me personally, um, I am half Irish and half Hispanic. And so my father, you know, he, you know, immigrated from Mexico to California and did that when he was fairly young. And there's not a lot of um, history there that I have, not a lot of connection with his ancestors or with his parents and things like that. So it's hard for me to get that knowledge or that information. However, my grandmother on my mother's side has kept all the information or a lot of the um, information about some of my ancestors on the Irish side. So it's just interesting for me, you know, how do I... It, it's funny because the, the Hispanic side of my family feels like the more healed side, which is interesting. The one that mm -hmm. I don't really have a lot of the information with. However, the, again, my mother's side, very traumatic, kind of dysfunctional, a lot of problems that happen there that I know need some healing. So I'm just wondering how, how exactly do people go about, you know, learning to contact? Like, is there, I mean, I guess it's just extremely intuitive, right? Uh, to a degree, but it's also, in the way I hold it, extremely structured for safety because, and the structure works well for a lot of Westerners who like a plan and a formula. Yeah, that's totally Which is understandable. Yeah, and the way I see working with the dead, uh, I'll make a comparison sometimes with working with nuclear material. You can have a long career in that if you have your Geiger counter and you observe safety protocols, but if you're sloppy with it, then you end up having the dead who are not yet well around you. Oh. And that's a, uh, it's not a beneficial energy. Wow. And so it's important ritually to have a respect for, frankly, the dangers that can happen. Um, but that's like anything. That's like using, you know, using a car. You can kill people. Um, but we do it a lot. And so the um, piece about genealogy in some ways having a lot of information, it's a bit like having a lot of phone numbers, but unless you hmm. call them, it's not a relationship yet. I like that. And, and so what matters is that you're in relationship with them. And my approach to ancestor work, ancestor contact is lineage based. And people in the West tend to think when I say, if I ask someone, hey, think of your ancestors, they tend to think of individuals and of recent ones. And so I'm saying that most traditionalists that I'm aware of when they think of the ancestors, they think of lineages or groups of ancestors, mm -hmm. and not only the recent ones. They think of ones also before remembered names, like mythic or ancient um, ancestors and perhaps deities or other forces that they're connected to. And so, picture standing at the beach, uh, and on a clear day, maybe you can see 30 miles out, and that would be like someone who has... 20 generations of genealogical information other people adoptees it may be just fog but you can hear the waves and so uh if either of those people think that they see the ocean they're del deluded right. because the picture of our ancestry is much much bigger than the last few hundred years Hey, 
Hey guys, I'm gonna break into today's regular programming for a quick announcement. I would like to invite and strongly encourage those who are interested in learning more about Dr. Four's work to join myself as well as others in Daniel's very first Ancestral Lineage Healing Online course. Daniel's systematic approach is non-dogmatic, ritually informed, and inclusive to people of diverse ancestries, myself included. Lessons emphasize psychological and energetic safety as well as our ability to relate directly and beneficially with our ancestors. The course is divided into two parts, each part consisting of seven lessons. So if you do decide to join both me and your peers, here's what you're going to get. Unlimited access to the instructional course videos, which are roughly about 30 minutes per lesson, and are uploaded and released every Sunday evening. You also have an option to download accompanying audio files and course content, an opportunity to engage in course participant discussion space. I'm assuming that's similar to a Facebook group or a forum. Also, an invitation during the course to ask Dr. Ford directly for support with the material. Also, there are four live 90-minute group support conferences with Dr. Four himself and ongoing access to accompanying readings. For more information, head back to ancestralmedicine.org. Or if you would like to check out the show notes for this week's episode, head back to ancestralhealthradio.com forward slash 28. Yeah, and you know, there was a part in your book, too, speaking of which, where it reminded me the seven gen- generations of the Iroquois, where I, I didn't know this, but um, apparently what they would do, if you broke that down, they would memorize, I believe, uh, I read this cor- if I read this correctly, around 250 names of their ancestors. Is that correct? If you include seven generations, it's 254 names. 254 I names. I am not aware of any one personally who has, partly because of just the difficulty of the recent centuries, that level of knowledge. But it's a good practice to hold in your awareness as much as you can about your family history and to let that land in a spirit of an ethical accountability with your choices and to consider the impact uh, on them as well as on future generations Mm -hmm. to see ourselves as embedded in a system and that's it's good medicine for folks in the west because many people tend to see themselves as very individualistic and it's it's harmful because we it's harmful for a lot of ways but it's harmful because we don't feel as morally accountable to others and also because we end up feeling isolated Mm -hmm. as a result and we think that our gifts are ours rather than an ancestral inheritance or trust that we've received and so it's not many of the things that we enjoy we haven't exactly earned them we've just received them and so it's it's good to not get too uh i mean to carry healthy pride but don't get too um dramatic about yeah. your sense of it because yeah, uh, a lot of yeah and the, the, another good thing is that a lot of the what we struggle with is ancestral it's systemic it's cultural it's family rather than just individual right. that's good news because it means we're not a loser because we're suffering it's just the conditions we happen to be born into and so we need to mm-hmm. uh, not add a layer of shame to it and reach out for the right kinds of allies to transform the trouble Wow, all I want really is connection. I crave that because I'm realizing as you get older, it's harder and harder to make friends because we're so wrapped up, at least in Western culture, we're so wrapped up in being an individual, right? That we get wrapped up in our own lives that it's hard for us to kind of branch out, make new friends and not feel isolated because I struggle with that being here in my apartment working on this podcast for you guys and talking to Daniel. It's really... It can be very isolating. So having that ancestor work and, and having that reverence seems very, um, I just noticed that it's the glue to our health. I it's feel it. like you can have all these other pieces, but without that big connection piece, it, it, it just is not sustainable. Yeah. As a, as a therapist and a doctor of psychology, it's my main critique of Western psychology. And, and there are many things I love about therapy. And, you know, I'm a, like I said, I'm a big fan of working out your issues so to speak Mm -hmm. but western psychology is for one it's founded mostly by european and american white men 
And so it's naturally going to carry some of those blind spots, a lot of which is getting gradually corrected as the field diversifies. But unfortunately, the field is the psychology of living human beings' relationships with themselves and other living human beings, mm. which is really excellent and incomplete. It's an incomplete picture of our relational landscape. We also have the capacity to relate in a very intimate and psychologically dynamic way with other than humans, with the plants, the animals, the land, with other than visible kinds of people like mm-hmm. the ancestors or deities, etc. And so there's this whole domain of relationships, all of which have their own dynamics and their own kind of projection and complex stuff that many people in the world enjoy with other than humans. Right. And Westerners, it's a, it's a loss of potential intimacy for us. Extreme loss of intimacy for us. I mean, you can see it everywhere now. Everybody I, I know has some sort of deep-seated loneliness. I just feel like everybody is kind of searching for something, but they don't know what it is. Well, yeah, a lot of people in the West, because we have such a difficult history of genocide toward Native and also African ancestry people in mm-hmm. North America, well, the Americas, um, there's a tendency to avoid the history. You're like, whoa, that was really traumatic. Let's just move ahead. And of course, that's a problematic stance. And we end up we end up isolated and fragmented and disconnected as a result. And so a lot of uh, my work, of course, specializes at this point in ancestors, but more generally I'm an animist, which is a, who just happens to specialize on the specific relationship between living humans and the dead or the not incarnate right now humans. But more importantly, I'm interested in reintroducing an animist framework in a really sensible, normal kind of way that ideally percolates into our political and legal, cultural understanding of just how to be. Please. And yeah. So, you know, if when we hold that to be true, it's like, oh, we have ethical, moral accountability to the waters, to the small songbirds whose habitat are destroyed by logging mm-hmm. to, you know, so many things. And when we could, like, that's overwhelming in its own way. It's a source of grief to recognize how much harm we're carrying out toward others. But there's no other choice but to walk right into that sorrow and heartache and choose to come back into relationship. What exactly do you call your work? I I favor the language of practical animism, practical which is animism. practical, meaning like inclusive, non-dogmatic, heart-centered, sensible, down-to-earth, uh, anim- animist, meaning that living human beings are just one kind of person in a much wider field of relationships, which includes the plant people, the stone people, the ancestor people, deities, etc., etc. And the emphasis is on relationship. Uh, the the way to get um, unplugged from the matrix, as it were, or more awake is to recognize relationship. It's where it's at. We're embedded in this much wider field of relationships. And that includes, like, if you want to be dwelling in reality, you need to become empathic to the kinds of suffering and oppression that mm-hmm. other other humans experience from systemic problems that you may unconsciously participate in replicating and how much all of the other than humans are suffering because of humans as a whole. Mm -hmm. And to see that staying in relationship, although it can be heartbreaking to do that, is the way to stay um, connected, the the way to stay um, real and have a meaningful life. It's, it's the way when people have a really disorienting enlightenment experience, like say there's six days into meditation retreat and the bottom gives out. Mm. They're not even on strong drugs. They're just like, oh my God, everything's empty. One of the things to orient within that is others. Mm. Things are empty, but you don't know what I'm thinking right now. You don't know what I'm going to do next. How interesting. There are others. Uh, and so... A relationship is the is the fundamental mystery in a lot of ways. Mm, I love the word relationship. It's all about our relationship to the food that we eat. It's all about mm. the relationship that we have to one another. It's all about the relationship we have to our work. One of the principles of generalizing here, many indigenous or more intact cultures mm-hmm. 
to tend to have in common is a respect for diversity in terms of human gifts and capacities. When people look to the natural world as the embodiment of the sacred, it's obvious that there's tremendous diversity in yeah. the natural world. And so that uh, appreciation for diversity tends to extend to the human culture and relationships as well, and recognizing that people have different gifts, different medicines, different destinies, different capacities. And so there's not a need for everyone to be the same. And what you need to fulfill your life here isn't the same as what I need. And that's a relief. That's excellent. And so what people crave, if they don't already have it, is to be really seen in their uniqueness mm -hmm. and to see it in a specific way and to see how they bring a very particular kind of quality to the earth. And it's, it's sacred, it's precious, and it's good to bring that out and to live that. So with your work, Daniel, what type of individuals do you see that typically come to you? Do you, do you notice that there's kind of an archetype? Some people come because they're suffering and they see, they sense that there's an intergenerational family ancestral component to that. And they want to get at it and get some relief from their suffering. And, and that's understandable. It's, it's similarly, people want to interrupt or transform patterns of trauma and, and disconnect. And so that's a common reason. And there's also in a very encouraging way, um, a, more and more people who are drawn on a vocational level, on a worldly calling kind of level to be ritualists, to help reintroduce these kinds of things into the, into the cultures that are modern America. And that's that, that's very exciting to, to me. That's another yeah. thing I have to talk to you about too. You know, there's this strange culture of people calling themselves shamans and neo shamanism and like, you know, all these, you know, keywords people sure. throw around. Like I saw the other day, somebody shared on Facebook, this woman who was like the, I don't know, some sisterhood thing, but they used every word that I could possibly think of that would, you know, trigger someone who was in this kind of group of rewilding or ancestral health. But they were doing it in like neoprene yoga pants in the middle of a city, sipping on, you know, mimosas afterwards or something like that. It was like ridiculous. But I'm noticing that the more that we talk about this, more spirituality and shamanism and coming into focus with our ancestors, that it's it's becoming monetized. I'm a little upset about it. It's a rich topic. The people who are young still and are attention-seeking and are clumsy and not very skillful in how they're approaching things, mm -hmm. it's off-putting, but I think it's ultimately a distraction from the bigger problem of a resurgence in coal mining, of mm -hmm. black people being shot by police, of massive income inequality and ongoing sex trafficking in the United States. And these things that are really tougher to look at because it's hard to know what to do about them and the level of suffering is so acute and overwhelming. And so I see in spiritual circles, because it's the world in which I walk in, a lot of people getting bent out of shape about more, oh, I just say like a, a less refined or a younger expression of spirituality and people trying to make a living on that. Mm -hmm. And my sense is like, don't like, may those folks uh, have the experiences they need to mature and to be uh, humbled in a beneficial way. So they grow into their potential yeah. and, 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 and may there be a more sensibility around social justice and cultural healing as we go along. But I see too often um, kind of more established spiritual teachers trying to put down younger, less refined practitioners. And mm -hmm. I think it's misguided. Uh, I'm not suggesting you're doing that. And it's not that I don't get annoyed by some of it as well. But more and more, I'm like, let's keep our eye on the ball. The more infighting there is among progressive minded people, right. the more the really destructive um, forces and corporate driven greed um, has a field day with it. I love that you said that right there because someone who was within the rewilding or ancestral health community knows that there are kind of these factions within rewild rewilding, you know, this kind of this community is, you know, there's kind of two camps, you know, 
And there are yeah. people that are just coming into it and they, maybe they come in it at it from, you know, the paleo side. And I like using this all the time. And then we have the people who have been rewilding for quite some time and maybe they were in the primitive skills group and, you know, they just don't, they kind of hate on each other, you know, like they don't understand each other quite well when it, really it guys take like a step a, back yeah. we're all on the same page here. It's a dumb bar fight on the Titanic. Yeah. Think of, think of traditional ritual and doctoring work, much like getting a medical degree. Mm -hmm. And it has the same level of uh, gravitas to it. And there's a lot of concern these days about cultural appropriation. And it's a, it's a big topic. It's a nuanced topic. But one of the things that I think sometimes gets overlooked in that is that uh, the, the bigger problem, as I see it, is people don't often respect the depth of training that's required to uphold the traditional system mm -hmm. with integrity. And so... You can be of whatever ancestral background, you can be an insider to any given group and still cut corners with your training. And if you, if you do that, you're out of integrity with the ancestors and with the spirits, and people are probably going to get hurt. And it's a bit like a doctor who did the first year of med school and is like, peace out. I'm going to open, open up. I'm going to start doing dentistry work, even though I, I learned it online. And so that's, that's, that's less about the racial background of the individual, and it's more about not respecting the depth of training that's required. A relationship with anything takes time, you know, and it, it, it evolves, and it, it, it takes work. Again, um, I would strongly suggest pick up a, a, a copy of Ancestral Medicine for yourself to kind of delve in and do your own ancestor work. But shamanism specifically, there is like this, you know, shamanism is like a buzzword right now, I feel like. so. It, it is. I almost, I feel for the people who have been working with that language for a long time because mm -hmm. I, I derived a lot of benefit from working within that paradigm and there's a lot of good to it. I think there is some blind spots and uh, demographic troubles about contemporary shamanism that could use some addressing. And it's certainly a word that's off-putting to many Native North American people mm -hmm. for understandable reasons. And one of my teachers, uh, Saren Garel, is a Mongolian shaman of half Mongolian ancestry who spoke fluent Mongolian and lived much of her life in Mongolia. And she would kind of laugh about this view that anyone who calls himself a shaman isn't. She's like, I'm, I'm a shaman. I'm a trained Mongolian Buryat shaman. And for her, it, I mean, that's this, the origin culture of the word, like or that cultural area of Siberia, indigenous cultures of Siberia. Mm -hmm. And so she had a very generous spirit about it and was um, happy to see folks picking up older ways. And uh, I see a lot like shamanism, modern shamanism, a little bit of a gateway drug. Mm -hmm. Like once people realize they can have direct relationship with the spirits, which is a strong suit of shamanism, it encourages that, then they often are guided to where they need to get to. The, the troubling thing is that people sometimes think that just because they're relating with the spirits, that makes them a healer for others. Mm. And that's a, that's a kind of more specialized calling that's not necessarily everybody's calling. In many traditional cultures that are animistic, everybody in the culture knows a little bit of magic or knows a little bit of practical um, technology, ritually speaking, to take care of life. And then some people are religious specialists in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so what's, what matters is what is your personal destiny? Every what other people are doing doesn't matter really. You just need to do you like crazy because <laughs> we're all going all to be dead soon. And so, do an excellent job of doing what you're here to do. And if you're not sure what you're here to do, make that question haunt you until you have more clarity about it because it's the right question. Absolutely. Please follow your heart. And so, now getting into the practical animism, let's talk a bit about how we can actually do this for ourselves, Dana. Where, where exactly would you have us begin? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, uh, one thing is to make intent, let's say for a year, to really reclaim that framework because it takes a minute. It's very doable, but if you're going to learn a new language or learn a new mm -hmm. skill, you have to say, well, there's some learning involved. Let me engage my also my intellect and become more educated about it. So that's one part. Another is to just start speaking out loud to the others. 
to the trees, to the animals, to the earth, to your ancestors. Just start to address them out loud this in the really, present. It's ridiculously profound, guys. Um, it's so I started doing this, and as I told you, I got a call from my sister who said, come down. It's your niece's seventh birthday. You've never seen her before. <laughs> come down. We want you there. Um, right. you know, and this, and this is crazy because I, you know, I was like, I'm just going to talk to my dad because my mm -hmm. dad, he passed. It's very emotional for me. Yeah. Um, very, yeah. uh, because the day that I moved here to San Jose, he passed away and he had been struggling with dementia from Parkinson's that was, you know, essentially brought on from di diabetes. And, um, you know, that's why this is such a huge passion for me. You know, I, I just, you know, I want to raise, uh, it's also very selfish, you know, because I want to raise a strong family for myself so that I can, I can create something new for them, something strong. And on top of that, while I'm doing this is kind of like a journey that I want people to come along with because I know that they're in that same situation and that they have that same yearning feeling, you know, like we're put on this planet for so much more. It's not for this kind of rat race. What is it? And then they fall into some category, say paleo, say primitive skills, whatever it is. And it all, as Peter Michael Bauer says, you know, all roads lead to rewilding. So when you get here, it's, it's beautiful. But then when you get here, it's it, again, you just woke up from the matrix and it's a whole different world. So you need a whole new breadth of skills, whole new tool set yeah. to work with and coming. I mean, and it's crazy because guys, I got Daniel's book as like a surprise in the mail. I didn't even know I was getting it and I got it and I opened it up and immediately I was drawn to it. I knew that this was going to be something big for myself and for you guys. So honestly, it was one of the books that I was like, I, I'm probably Manzanita, if you're listening, this is the happiest. I'm, this is the best book you've sent me so far. So, um, okay. Um, fanboy aside. Um, so speaking with our ancestors, I just want people to realize how powerful that was. And I felt like it called yeah, something into existence for me. And it was very healing. Is, it's great. No, roll with it. It's good. One, one of the deceptively powerful things about speaking directly to the spirits is that it breaks centuries of unspoken and often unspoken agreements of colonialism and mm -hmm. patriarchy and um, really as scientism in a narrow way, spoken as a fan of science, but a worldview that uh, arrogantly reduces the relational landscape only to other living humans. Absolutely. And so that paradigm, which is eating away at the earth rapidly and there are 50 to 100 species that go extinct every day because of human ignorance and and so this break breaking that agreement occurs when you just choose to start coming back into relationship with the others and you can be like hey rosemary growing outside my house i haven't said hello to you you're beautiful good morning hmm. i don't even know how to listen to you but i i appreciate you i want to use my words and this moment of my precious human life to say, good morning, love to you. And, and just start to have that spirit of relationality and humility and open heartedness with the, the beings that are around you. Like, Hey, thanks to these black beans, thanks to these, you know, this squash or these tomatoes that were domesticated by the earlier indigenous peoples of this continent and respect to your history and your wilder, more ancient history. Mm. Thanks for, being metabolized by my body today mm -hmm. so that we can have this conversation. So greeting the food plants and the, the domesticated animals that we eat, um, starts to, uh, it, it shifts things and it, and it breaks old agreements that aren't serving anymore. Yeah, and it's, it sounds so familiar too. I mean, guys, it wasn't so long ago that people, you know, traditionally went to church every Sunday, you know, and I remember a time where we used to sit down at the dinner table and we would say a prayer before our meals. You know, it's not so different from giving reverence, just in a different respect. So um, I like that it is so practical in that way that it's so simple. And yet, you know, when you were saying that, as you were talking to the Rosemary, <laughs> I, mm -hmm. you know, I felt it. You know, I really felt that, that you were just, even just saying that just as an example, I, you know, I got a little like, you know, got a little goosebumps. So yeah. Um, it, very powerful words carry a lot of power and just saying them aloud and, and having that reverence for living and non-living things around you is extremely powerful. One, one other piece is that even if you're 
entirely of European ancestry, as am I, mm -hmm. know that there are intact traditions, um, some from Europe, some reconstructed from Europe, some from other places, that welcome individuals of diverse different ancestries who come with humility to learn. And so know that there are teachers, there are communities, there are traditions. Sure, you need to use discernment. Sure, some spiritual teachers misuse their power and people are people, be discerning. But mm -hmm. not all people are dangerous and know that you can enjoy community and beneficial relationships with peers and even teachers who are doing this kind of thing. So don't reinvent the wheel, it's inefficient. Life is short. And so seek out folks who have been unplugged from the matrix for a minute and let them help you. Mm -hmm. I feel like the, the loss of apprenticeship and mentorship is something that, you know, I, I would love to have somebody on here that could talk more about apprenticeship and mentorship specifically and how that, you know, as a culture I see is just kind of dying or, or at least being pushed, pushed out of the scene. So, um, sure. and that's extremely important because today, especially from, someone like myself who really my father was around, but he wasn't so much. And so I was always mm -hmm. seeking other father like figures to exemplify, you know, and we all need these type of people in our lives regardless. And I spe I feel especially now in the time that we live in where things are so fragmented, we're all searching for people who can give us answers. So if we can search those out through our ancestors, those directly related to us, I feel like you would get the most healing, most healing, most impactful work done there, guys. Okay. And another question I had real quick was, you mm -hmm. know, for those of us who are multicultural, how would we start mm -hmm. looking into our ancestry? Would we go, I mean, just maybe the one that we feel most connected to, or, you know, maybe the one mm -hmm. that we felt had the most trauma needs the most healing or yeah, it's a good question. In terms of just expanding knowledge, the combination of speaking with living family when possible and online ancestry research, a lot of which can be done for free and possibly a DNA test, uh, if that feels right to you, uh, can yield a lot of information in a short amount of time. And in terms of the actual direct engagement with the ancestors, it's my habit and this it's detailed in the book and i'm not saying it to be self-promotional but the book itself is written in a way that's a, a workbook it's a how-to book i love so that. really yeah i gave away the the method in that way so working with one of the trainees in the work uh, in a session format can be supportive and oh that's perfect the the uh the process includes looking intuitively at the what kind of condition your lineages are already in in the present Mm -hmm. and without trying to connect with them right away. Because just remember, just diving into connection assumes that they're healthy, and they might be or they might not be. And so just going right to, hey, this is exciting. I want to reconnect with my ancestors. I'm going to now call them into my space. Uh, that last step it requires a bit more nuance and discernment. Mm. And it's like saying, I'm ready for contact. How do I proceed safely? Yes. And so do proceed, but proceed with some discernment and safety. And, and if it's right for you, a little bit of support up front until you get more comfortable navigating safely the relationships with the dead. Mm -hmm. So, um, but in terms of where to start, I tend to start folks on the lineages that are more well first to have a spiritual mm -hmm. win and to be more uh, resilient. Uh, and re and resourced and so and for folks who are multiracial which is so many people mm -hmm. it's a uh, it's a blessing really i i know that or it's not from my direct lived experience but i see that it can also be a burden and very complicated on the level of identity mm -hmm. but i think multiracial people have a a real particular necessary beneficial uh, voice to bring to the cultural healing that's needed mm -hmm. and just just the very existence of so many people who are beautifully diverse with their own blood lineages, it is a reminder to not replicate this very pure sort of idea of races, of different races to begin with. This is largely a fabrication from uh, European aristocratic slave owners to justify slavery and genocide toward native people. And so it's important that we be very careful about how we dismantle the legacy of racism and not unnecessary replicate 
unnecessarily replicate an idea of racial essentialism. And so uh, multiracial people are uh, just by being who they are, are a reminder to not be rigid about that. That's great advice, especially for myself. And that's good to know that, you know, because in my head, I was thinking, well, of course, I'd want to work on maybe my, my, my side of the family where I feel like it was more damaged, but you're saying exactly opposite before we make contact, or if you do, we want healed ancestors, those who are ancestors. They're not the dead yet. They're, they're someone who has made that, that distinction for themselves as someone who has passed on to somebody who has, has just made right for themselves on the other side, right? Yeah. It's good to start with what's working and build on that. It's a safer, more sustainable, long-term approach to the work. Right. Before we go, um, I know that we're getting close to time right now. I'm just curious, is there any other, uh, and by the way, I just want to thank you again for sharing your wisdom and your time with the tribe today. Uh, but before we go, how do people get in contact with you if they're interested in learning more about you and your work? Sure. My, my website is Ancestral Medicine, T-R-A-L, ancestralmedicine.org, all one word. And I have a newsletter I send out and there's lots of uh, free interviews and talks and such on the website. And if you're drawn to engage this work, uh, you can send me a message. There are trainees that I'm supervising and folks that I'm continuing to train and how to guide this work. And so lots of great people. Like if you like the work and you don't resonate with me personally, no problem, uh, because there are really uh, diversely ancestored folks who are uh, have my blessing to carry this work forward. And so I'm, I'm glad for that. And, uh, and check out the book. It's a, it's, I wrote it as a, my best attempt to give away everything I, I have to give on the topic. And so it's a 300 plus page pragmatic how to book on it's ancestral healing. Yeah. It's yeah. There's a lot in there. Yeah. It will. I just wanted to say for people listening, um, it's, well, actually I want to ask you, how long did it take you to write the book? <laughs> yeah it took me nine years but that so, doesn't mean i was efficient no nine but years. <laughs> nine years in the making so i just want people to understand the labor of love the work that went into this book guys and you know i i, I feel like i don't really endorse books super hard like i am with this one because i feel like this is there's such an open space for healing for people and that they can really i mean this is practical animism i mean i've that's what I've been looking for for so long. So um, Dr. Fowler has this right here. I'm holding this. I'm so excited, guys, if you couldn't already tell. But are you connected on social media at all? Oh, sure. People can you can be my friend on Facebook. And I have a <laughs> ancestral medicine page where I post some stuff there. So, yeah, and Instagram. So, yeah. I'm, okay. And I'll make I'll sure that's away all linked at that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll put that in the show notes for you and um, as well as – um, any other links that you'd like me to include? But yeah, let me let me mention as well. Just mm -hmm. that, um, there are regular in-person trainings. I'll be teaching in Asheville here in two weeks. There's an immersion, uh, still spaces, and training in Rowe, Massachusetts, in, in end of September, and Victoria, BC. And so I do trainings in person if people want to connect for multi-day ritual deep dives. So, yeah, I'll let you guys know that I'm definitely going to be looking into one of those for myself. So. Um, Beautiful. And, you know, well, that's, I, I feel like that was a, a great introduction to your work, Dr. Four. And um, I really do encourage the audience to look into this. Um, really, really pay attention to this episode. And I want you to, this is just surface level. I only have an hour, really, I mean, to to kind of go into this with my my guests. And it's all on you guys to take the action afterwards to make something happen. So I provide this for you. You guys go take the action, all right? Because I'm going to do it on my end. You guys have to do it on yours. But um, that ends today's episode with Dr. Daniel Four of AncestralMedicine.org. Guys, head back for show notes, resources, and more back at the website at AncestralHealthRadio.com. And to all my hunter-gatherer gardeners out there, remember to take a walk on the wild side. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, then do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating or review of the show. 
This helps improve the show's ranking and visibility with other would-be hunter-gatherer gardeners just like yourself. But if you can't do that, I'll totally understand. We're still cool. But maybe you could share this episode on your favorite social media network, or at the very least, continue the conversation with myself and the tribe on the official Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But whatever you do, remember to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at ancestralhealthradio.com. Yep.